freeform music, arts and culture, please make a pledge and support KPFK Free Speech Radio. You're listening to KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles, and streaming across the globe at kpfk.org. Radio powered by the people. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, will Israel storm a city of 1.4 million refugees? LA City is being sued over failing to house the homeless. Latest from the Justice 8. Did Orange County Board of Supervisors use COVID money to enrich themselves? Is the West really the best? The ugly truth behind Gonzalo Lira's murder in a Ukrainian prison. Presidential elections in Indonesia. And news from outside the NATO bubble. All this and more coming up. Good evening, I'm Rachel Brunke. Heavy tank and machine gun fired occurred in Khan Yunus, Gaza, as the Israeli army stormed Nasser Hospital, forcing everyone inside to evacuate and flee for their lives. Meanwhile, roughly 1.4 million Palestinians sheltering in cramped conditions in Rafah are bracing for the announced Israeli assault on the city, but were hoping for a diplomatic breakthrough in talks in Cairo. Israel's military has stepped up air raids and artillery fire before a feared ground operation on the southern city of Rafah that Israel had designated a safe zone. But international efforts to broker a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas suffered a setback yesterday as Israel recalled its negotiating team and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu accused Hamas of, quote, delusional demands. The relatives of the hostages said Netanyahu's decision amounted to a death sentence for their loved ones. Now in its fifth month, the war has devastated Gaza's health sector, with less than half of its hospitals only partially functioning, as scores of people are killed and wounded in daily bombardments. The war in Gaza has become one of the deadliest and most destructive air and ground offenses in recent history. About 29,000 Palestinians have been killed, mostly women and children, according to Gaza's health ministry, which does not distinguish between civilians and combatants. About 70,000 people also have been wounded in the war. Around 80% of Gaza's 2.3 million people have been driven from their homes. Large areas in northern Gaza have been completely destroyed, and a humanitarian crisis has left half of the population starving. A complaint filed in federal court by a group of downtown L.A. business owners and residents demanded that the city face a nearly $6.4 million fine for its alleged lack of transparency and failure to reduce homeless encampments. A March 4th hearing is set to discuss the motion filed last week in federal court by the L.A. Alliance for Human Rights. The motion alleges that the city has violated a 2022 settlement agreement between the association and the city, calling for the housing of a minimum of 60% of people living on the streets in each of the city's 15 council districts. In the settlement agreement, the city set a milestone of 3,700 new beds for the unhoused in the last fiscal year, but actually created only 1,748 beds in that period the motion contends. The LA Alliance also alleges that while the city committed to create a total of 5,190 beds by the end of 2023, it has created only 2,810, falling 2,380 beds short. For 14 months, LA Alliance lawyers maintain the city has stalled, made excuses, and waffled in committing to encampment resolution metrics. L.A. Mayor Karen Bass 
claimed that 21,000 Angelinos were at least temporarily housed and blasted the accusations as false. But the official numbers show a different picture. The 2023 Greater Los Angeles Homeless Count showed a 9% rise in homelessness on any given night in L.A. County to an estimated 75,500 people and a 10% rise in the city of Los Angeles to an estimated 46,300 people. In response, in a response filed Monday, City Attorney Heidi Feldston Soto contends that the city, quote, was in full compliance with its obligations under the settlement agreement and that the LA Alliance has suffered no actual damages as a result of any delay. On that basis alone, the motion should be summarily denied, end quote. U.S. District Judge David Carter, who is presiding over the case and who had signed off on the city's settlement two years ago and the county's pact with the L.A. Alliance last year, scheduled the hearing for March 4th to discuss the motion. In March 2020, the L.A. Alliance sued the city and county of Los Angeles to compel elected officials to rapidly address the homelessness crisis that exploded during the COVID-19 lockdowns. The plaintiffs demanded the immediate creation of shelter and housing to get people off the streets, services and treatment to keep the unhoused in shelter, and regulation of public spaces to make streets, sidewalks, and parks safe and clean. In the settlement, it was agreed that the city would reduce encampments, establish deadlines and goals to document its progress, and return public spaces to their intended uses. According to the LA Alliance, the settlements included 3,500 mental health and treatment beds and 19,700 beds for people experiencing homelessness, including 6,700 beds focused on helping those living near freeways and underpasses. According to LA Alliance, these commitments were not fulfilled. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. The corruption scandal at the Orange County Board of Supervisors goes into the next round. Hunter Green has the story. There is a lot of corruption that is happening in our county. Orange County Board of Supervisor Vicente Sarmiento said, Unfortunately, there are abuses of power, abuses of authority, and we know that that's something that's unfortunately existed within these offices and in other government offices. Government documents found by the news outlet LAist show Orange County Supervisor Andrew Doe funneled $13.5 million in taxpayer funds to his daughter's charity, all of which Andrew Doe had a leading role in awarding. Most of the money was never listed on public agendas before or after it was approved, and Doe did not publicly disclose his family relationship before directing the money, according to three of his fellow supervisors and the county's chief executive. As a result, Orange County Board of Supervisor Vicente Sarmiento recently introduced a proposal that would require supervisors to disclose immediate family connections to contractors they are awarding money to. It also would require supervisors to hold public votes when such connections existed. Currently, county policies let any supervisor award money to organizations run by their adult children without having to disclose the relationship. Supervisors can also approve funds to their adult children without having to disclose the award on a public meeting agenda. The ethics proposal deadlocked among the supervisors two to two with Vicente Sarmiento and Katrina Foley voting in favor, Don Wagner and Doug Chaffee against, and Andrew Doe was absent the vote. That means the reform proposal was not approved and is now officially dead. Orange County Supervisor Don Wagner took exception to Sarmiento's charge that there is a lot of corruption. I resent it, Wagner said of Sarmiento's remarks. I am unaware of none in my office, Wagner said. At least two audience members then laughed audibly. Orange County Supervisor Don Wagner said he sees nothing wrong with what Andrew Doe did because there's no legal requirement for officials to disclose or recuse themselves when their votes would financially benefit their adult children. 
Sarmantis said the public should be able to know about these kinds of close family connections. I want to make sure I'm on record in supporting open government, transparency, good governance, and a good ethical standard, Sarmantis said. I interviewed Jessica Brasati and Rita Barnett-Rose, the two attorneys from the law firm Facts, Law, Truth, Justice, who are representing Free Now Foundation in their lawsuit against the Orange County Board of Supervisors in regards to their illegal prolonged COVID-19 state of emergency. They commented on how these latest revelations could affect their case against the county. Peggy Hall, who's a citizen of Orange County, she brought the lawsuit in September of 2021 because in June of 2021, the Orange County Board of Supervisors decided that they were not going to review local conditions of emergency every 30 to 60 days, which they are required to do by statute. Governor Newsom had given them a little bit of wiggle room and said that he was waiving the fixed periods of 30 to 60 days, but that the local county supervisors would have the responsibility for ending the emergency at the soonest possible time, which is what the statute also requires. So in June of 2021, the board decided that they were no longer going to do those reviews at all. And they were going to instead just wait and continue to keep Orange County in a state of emergency, of local emergency, until Governor Newsom decided to terminate the statewide state of emergency, which was not until February of 2023. So basically, the Orange County Board of Supervisors kept the citizens of Orange County under local states of emergency for several years without bothering to meet any of the standards or requirements for keeping a state of emergency in place. So our lawsuit was brought to try to force them to at least conduct periodic review periods so that they could review these conditions and comply with the statute, hold public meetings and comply with the statute. And among some of the things we alleged in our lawsuit was that the reason they were keeping this state of emergency in place without bothering to do the reviews or conduct public meetings is one, because there really wasn't any uh, state of emergency. So they didn't want to go and have a meeting and say that there was when clearly the conditions did not show a state of emergency. But two, because there were large amounts of COVID grift that was coming in through you know the various um, programs to give money to the communities. One of the things we allege is that these county supervisors were using this COVID cash basically to both line their own pockets and to give favored contracts to, you know, friends and family and favored, you know, special interests. And it turns out that really is the case. And a recent scandal that Jessica is going to talk about, you know, basically shows that we've been right all along. So Jess, why don't you tell them what we what just un- got uncovered? I'm Jessica Barsotti, and we've been pursuing these lawsuits against school districts and local boards of supervisors related to the pandemic emergencies. And so what we uncovered recently, you know, we've sued the Orange County Board of Supervisors, and one of the supervisors' name is Andrew Doe. And what has come up recently, there was actually a very good article from a publication called The LAist. I want them to be acknowledged here because... Their their publication dove into this issue and revealed that there were $13.5 million of grants that were given to a foundation called Viet America Society, which was run by Andrew Doe's daughter, Rihanna Doe. And there were a lot of questions that were raised about how this money was given because it was never approved by the local county board of supervisors. And it was also never disclosed that Andrew Doe, who, as it turns out, was the sole grantor of these funds to this nonprofit, it was never disclosed that his daughter had a close relationship to this nonprofit. And so there were a lot of questions raised about how this can happen. And this is precisely what we were talking about in our lawsuit where there were these massive amounts of COVID funds coming into the counties and there were grants being given that that related to personal contacts. And this is precisely what happened here. And interestingly, in Orange County, there was a lot of questions raised about those activities. And 
the ethics of it, of course, because people said, well, he should have disclosed at the very minimum that this was his daughter's organization. And one thing a lot of people didn't realize is that uh, in Orange County, they allowed district supervisors to have what they call discretional funds. Each supervisor was allowed to give on their own with no oversight. In this case, it obviously was at least $13.5 million because that's what Doe was able to give to this organization without any approval from anyone else. And when he was questioned about it, he said, well, I didn't have to disclose this relationship with my daughter which, as it turns out, is actually true under the Orange County rules, which is kind of remarkable because they do have an ethics rule, Rule 37, in the county, but but that rule does not include disclosing personal relationships to grantees. All it requires is for supervisors to disclose their own personal financial interest or gain, but not if it's your spouse, child, mother, father, which clearly, to me, appears to be a, a a loophole. Interestingly, after this all came out, the new supervisor, Vincent Saramiento, introduced a resolution to close the loophole just recently, on uh, January 23rd of this year. Essentially, it proposed a series of ethics reforms that included a change to this Rule 37 and required people to disclose personal family connections when they are doling out this money that belongs to the county that they are able to personally do without any oversight or approval from the board. And to me, shockingly, that was voted down by the Board of Supervisors. It seems to me that there's a problem in the county in terms of accountability. It's a troubling situation. Doe's daughter, for example, she's 22 years old. She's in law school, and so she's still a student. So it's very obvious that this is a huge loophole. How does this situation help your lawsuit against the Orange County supervisors regarding the COVID-19 emergency status. What it shows is that what the lawsuit alleges in terms of things happening in the county that don't appear to be benefiting the county or the county residents or the county businesses as intended, these funds are being used to line the pockets of personal interests of the supervisors which is what we allege in our lawsuit, this is precisely why it's so important that these county supervisors do their job and review local emergency conditions and end emergencies when they should be ended and not extend it for the purposes of obtaining more funds with which you can use to, to help your personal friends. For example, here, the county conditions probably did not warrant any further COVID funds Yet this group, Viet America Society, received more than $3.1 million in 2023. These were not lump sums that were given in 2020. These were periodic COVID payments that the gravy train kept going. And there was every perverse incentive for all of these supervisors to extend the state of emergency, which they did for three, you know, three years, when the statute actually has language in there that says that they have a duty to terminate the emergency as soon as conditions no longer warrant keeping them. So it's showing that it could it was abused, it was not followed, and it also shows one of the things that they're trying to do now, now that the emergency has ended after three years, is they're trying to say that this whole lawsuit is moot because the emergency has ended. Well, one of the ways you defeat mootness is to show that it's a situation that could happen again. And the very fact that they're voting, they don't see a problem with the way they used this COVID money to accepted COVID money when there was no state of emergency, use this COVID money not to help the businesses that they helped to destroy, but to literally funnel money to their family. This girl is 22 years old now. She was an undergrad when she was first getting her first few millions. At the time that he decided to funnel the money, it wasn't even a legitimate 501c3 nonprofit. It was basically created, it looks like, for the purposes of, of you know, receiving this money. It's supposed to be doled out for emergency is showing that this situation is not moot at all. There's an act of controversy and it's very likely to be repeated because as, as we know and we can see 
that the officials in uh, California are are very trigger happy when it comes to declaring states of emergency here and to abusing that process. A good way to, to upend democracy and representative government, um, it might be easier for them to get things done, but it's certainly not the way the system is supposed to work. Particularly recently, the states of emergency have been used as a weapon against the people rather than a shield. The emergency law is very strong and it allows a lot of things that would not normally be allowed under the law. People in power or whoever who want to have more control have recognized that and seen, well, this is a way to push through things that we want to have happen without the normal process. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Eden, Alex, and Amarado is known for leading crowds to defend street vendors and to decry racism. But the San Bernardino County District Attorney accuses Enamorado of leading a conspiracy to commit violence on three alleged victims. The street vendor advocate and six of his fellow activists have been in jail without bail since their arrest in December, and Enamorado has been dealing with health issues while incarcerated. Reggie Wong reports. A Superior Court judge ruled at a final bail hearing on February 9th to deny seven street vendor advocates bail, like the two previous judges before him. Judge John Wilkerson said he believed they posed a public safety risk. A noticeably thinner enamorado shook his head as he heard the judge's decision. Afterwards, Namorado gave permission to his attorney, Nicholas Rosenberg, to disclose his medical problems and release a statement. Alex had a treatment for colon cancer. And ever since that treatment, he's had bleeding. This happened during the preliminary hearing. I had to ask the judge to have him uncuff his hand when he went to the bathroom. And the judge approved that order. But then the deputy stopped following that order during the preliminary hearing. Now, if that's not a Title 15 issue, so he's been requesting the gastrointestinal specialist for basic remedial treatment because he's bleeding. And if you know, if bleeding goes untreated, you can actually faint and it's possible that there are health repercussions. So Alex is not getting the treatment that he deserves for a valid medical reason. Now, he told me that the next day after he requested to see the gastrointestinal specialist, that they only brought him to the general medical doctor. And the general medical doctor told him, Mr. Enamorado, you will never see a specialist because you requested spicy food in December, and that's why you have acid. And I asked Alex, did you explain to the doctor what your presenting medical condition was? And he says, yes, Rosenberg. I told him I'm here for internal bleeding. So as of right now, Alex has yet to see a gastrointestinal specialist. Rosenberg told supporters that withholding medical care to inmates violates Title 15, the state's minimum standards for local detention facilities. Another example of a possible Title 15 violation was how Enamorado was recently disciplined for allegedly breaking phone call rules in jail. He was placed in a 4 by 8 cell for 23 hours a day. Enamorado told Rosenberg that he was in the hole for 12 days, two days longer than he should have been. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office responded about Enamorado in an email. He is being closely monitored for any medical conditions at the jail and any necessary specialty care will be provided, wrote Gloria Huerta, a PIO for the sheriff. The activist's next hearing is scheduled for March 1st and their trial is set for April 8th. The group is known as the Justice Eight because there were initially eight of them, but Galette Acevedo is now being tried separately for a misdemeanor assault charge. Acevedo has since been released on bail. The rest of the Justice Eight face charges that include assault, use of tear gas, kidnapping, and false imprisonment during two incidents in Pomona and Victorville. 
Other members of the Justice Aid are Namorado's partner, Wendy Lujan, David Chavez, Stephanie Amasquita, Fernando Lopez, Vanessa Carrasco, and Edwin Pena. Outside the Victorville courthouse, supporters of the Justice Aid listen to Rosenberg read a statement from a Namorado. I am not surprised by today's ruling, but this continues to prove San Bernardino County's corruption. We are facing similar charges to what prominent activists faced in the 1960s. Please pray for Wendy, who is being targeted inside the jail and has now been sent back to the hole again for another 10 days. The East LA 13 and the Black Panthers in the 1960s had worse drama. And this is why they arrested eight of us to create chaos. But drama is also a way of grieving because this is a tragedy and this is an injustice. I asked him, what do you want street vendors to know? And he said, street vendors are still not alone. Street vendors are still not alone. And we love them and we miss them. Huerta responded that inmates get moved for various reasons. For safety reasons, that information is not released by the department. Attorney Damon Alamori, who represents Carrasco, said this case violates constitutional rights to bail, due process, and a fair trial. Someone told him there were 10 sheriff's deputies in the courtroom, more than there usually are. That's indicative of the violation of due process against these individuals. Who are these people in their minds? Are they uh, terrorists? Are they uh, members of uh, ISIS or Hamas or something to that effect that that, uh, require all that? Um, are they afraid of the folks in the audience? At the end, they said that our, whatever we're doing here is, uh, is actually affecting the court. My opinion is that they're not used to having the people in court. They're not used to having the people in court advocating for defendants to this extent. And what they want to do is make sure that everyone in court stays in line. And by, by, by saying stays in line, I mean follows everything that they say to a T, even if it's arbitrary and prejudicial and indicative of a violation of your rights to observe all this stuff as, as members of this state, this country, as citizens of this country, as inhabitants of this country who have rights under the U.S. Constitution and the law. Alamori also spoke about his client. She had absolutely nothing to do with any of this. She was only there by their argument, and that's it. Is that enough to convict somebody of conspiracy? To convict somebody of, of being part and parcel of some sort of an organized crime? No, it's not. An activist named Mr. Checkpoint is urging Justice Aid supporters to report Enamorado's situation to the Department of Justice website. He said on Instagram that if enough people make an online report, then the DOJ will look into the issue. To contact the DOJ, go to civilrights.justice.gov backslash report. This is Reggie Wong and Zia Nazami signing off. The revolution will not be televised. Revolution will not be televised. Highway, Pacific Coast Highway will be closed nightly in both directions in a section of Malibu and Ventura County until further notice due to erosion from high tides and storm damage, city officials announced yesterday. All lanes of PCH will be closed nightly from 6 p.m. to 7 a.m. from Sycamore Canyon Road to Las Posas Road in Ventura County. Caltrans plans to install K-rails to block off the right Oceanside lane and to begin emergency steps to stabilize the collapsed slope. A Caltrans inspector must assess the damage each morning and determine when it's safe to reopen, Malibu officials said. Crews will shift lanes to the land side to provide two lanes in both directions. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. The following is a commentary by Caitlin Johnstone. 
Westerners who don't appreciate the extreme dysfunctionality of Western civilization are like someone in an abusive marriage who hasn't yet recognized that there's a problem, or someone who has had a violent and chaotic childhood who still thinks their home life was basically normal. In reality, we are living in a profoundly sick dystopia that is built on a foundation of human corpses. Our news media, our propaganda services, our entertainment is brainwashing, and our mainstream culture is social engineering, all built to keep us turning the gears of a vast globe-dominating empire. There's a widespread assumption throughout the Western world that while things might not be perfect, our society is certainly much better than what people experience in a nation like China. Smugly believing ourselves to be a free society, full of free thinkers and free people, in contrast with those unfortunate, thought-controlled conformists. In fact, Western civilization is one giant thought-controlled conformity machine where people's minds are shaped by mass-scale psychological manipulation far more effective than anywhere else in the world, exactly because Westerners don't know this is happening and believe they are free. Western minds don't like to be told this, because it goes against everything they've been trained to believe about their nation, their society, and their world. Obviously, we are much freer here than those poor saps in the East. Here in the West, we are free to choose between 197 flavors of frosted breakfast cereal and 20,000 different superhero movies. We are free to choose between voting for warmongering capitalist authoritarian Democrats or warmongering capitalist authoritarian Republicans. We are free to sell our labor at a fraction of the value of, that it generates to any exploitative ecocidal employer of our choosing. We are free to think whatever thoughts we've been trained to think by our education systems, our mass media, and Silicon Valley algorithm manipulations. We are free to speak our minds, which have been shaped and conditioned to serve the interests of the powerful and never to say anything that falls outside the overtone window of acceptable opinion. Sure, there are outliers in the margins, Westerners who've slipped outside the matrix of thought control and have gained the ability to traffic in unauthorized opinions. If you're hearing this, you're probably one of them. But our numbers are deliberately kept too small to have any political consequence. And if those numbers start getting too big for comfort, we immediately see influence ops to sow division and confusion and herd people back towards the mainstream stream flock. Sure, we in our small numbers are free to voice unauthorized opinions on marginal platforms where we can't have much impact. We're free to dig a hole in the ground and whisper whatever we want into it also. The biggest single obstacle to our freedom in the West is our widespread belief that we are free. Until we collectively realize we're human livestock being continually herded into a respective gear-turning stations to keep the imperial juggernaut trudging ever forward on the world stage, we've got no chance to break free and bring the whole abusive system crashing down. Until this is seen, we're like the wife who thinks it's perfectly normal that her husband controls all her finances and dictates every aspect of her life, and who'd be shocked and angered if anyone tried to tell her that this is what an abusive relationship looks like. We're like the man who insists he had a happy childhood, despite remembering a lot of body trauma and screams. The truth is all around us. We're marinating in it 24-7, but we can't see it because it's all we've ever known. We've been conditioned to think that this murderous, ecocidal, mind-controlled dystopia is normal, and we can't imagine it being any other way. And the prospect of ending it can actually feel scary and intimidating, just as it can for someone who's thinking about fleeing a, an abusive relationship. But real freedom is just on the other side of that fear. All we've got to do is become sufficiently conscious of what's really going on here. And this was a commentary by award-winning journalist, Caitlin Johnstone. And it's time for, again for our fun drive, and it's time where you give forward. 
I mean, where else are you going to hear about Gaza from Kate or from Caitlin Johnstone about the Justice Eight, about endless advances in the housing of LA County's people? This probably isn't your first time listening to Rebel Alliance News, and we're working every day for free, gathering the news so you can be informed, not by infotainment that other stations are bringing you, but by real, uncensored, hard-hitting news. We can do this because we don't take money from large corporations like NPR does. We are truly independent. You're our sponsors. Your donations help us to keep going, and it's needed more than ever. We offer you the fruits of our labor in an amazing best-off compilation on a USB stick. KPFK and Pacifica have collected the voices of dissent and of conscience, the voices for human rights against racism, for over six decades. This is an archive that you just can't get anywhere else, and it can be yours for only $250. Please get it for yourself, for your children, your school, your community. And share this knowledge that many immediate outlets want to condemn to the memory hole of history. Please go to your phones. We have someone at them. Call 818-985-5735 and say you want to donate to Rebel Alliance News. If you want to keep us on the air, please donate now to 818-985-5735. Or you can go online to www.kpfk.org so that you will still know that tomorrow what is going on in this city, this country, and the world. Do it for your kids. Save and protect independent media. We are the last holdout. Call 818-985-5735 and donate now. And if you're one of the lucky people who can afford a little more, donate more because many of us are hurting and can't donate even if they wanted to. Let's stand together and keep this amazing historical radio station going. Thank you all so much. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Gonzalo Lira Sr. is working to investigate the untimely death of his son, an American investigative journalist and blogger, Gonzalo Lira, 55, who died on January 12th of this year in a, UK, in a Ukrainian prison. Glenn Greenwald spoke to him. How did you find out about the death of your son and what is it that you learned about the circumstances of his death? Well, the process was uh, very simple. Finally, my son arrived into a hospital on January the 4th because he had double pneumonia. He had uh, pneumothorax and he had a heavy case, an acute case of edema. He could not breathe. He would lose conscience if he spoke for more than two minutes. And this is a small note that he wrote to his sister, my daughter. Once he arrived in that hospital, the following week he died. The director of this Ukrainian hospital in the city of Kharkiv called the U.S. Embassy and informed them that my son Gonzalo had died. The official from the U.S. Embassy called my daughter, and this was on January the 12th. And that's how I heard of my son's death in a hospital sent by the jailers that he had been for eight months incommunicado in the city of Kharkiv. My son did not have an attorney other than a court-appointed attorney that did not speak any English. And my son's charges were that he was a pro-Russian propagandist because as a blogger reporter, he had over 300 subscribers in the various websites that he had, and he told them the reasons for Russia invading Ukraine. He explained the why, and he ventured in his analysis that Ukraine would never win a war against Russia, no matter what help they received from the USA or the NATO countries. Your son was a citizen both of Chile 
and the United States, so he was an American citizen. Gonzalo was born in Burbank in the city of Los Angeles in 1968 while I was doing my postgraduate work in economics. He was born in the USA. After graduating from uh, Dartmouth, he stayed in the USA for many years. And obviously anyone born in the United States receives automatic lifelong citizenship, uh, an American passport, and all of that in the full rights of all American citizens under the Constitution. Now, he was 55 years old when he died, which obviously is very young, especially to die of pneumonia. Usually a 55-year-old man in generally good health will be able to combat pneumonia. When he was detained on May the 1st, Gonzalo was in totally normal health. He had never been sick in a hospital. Did you ever learn any more information from the United States uh, consulate about the circumstances of his death? No, none whatsoever. Since day one, when my son was detained, according to the embassy protocol around the world, an official of the embassy has to go and speak to the detained American citizen in a country overseas immediately, offering him legal assistance immediately, offering them communication with the family. None of those things the U.S. Embassy did because senile Biden gave the green light to dictator Zelensky to detain my son. For the first time, put a video criticizing senile Biden, as he referred to President Biden on the 27th of April, the year 2023. Four days later, Gonzalo is detained by machine gun soldiers, at least 12 of them went to his apartment to break down the door of his apartment, and they detained him four days after he criticized for the first time, senile Biden. As an American citizen, obviously he has the absolute right to criticize the president in as harsh of terms as he wants. And there's plenty of other people saying what he said about Absolutely. Joe Biden. I remember, you know, as somebody who's been covering this war, watching his reports from Ukraine, his YouTube reports and others, and was amazed at the courage that it took, seeing how dissidents were being treated in Ukraine, to continue to speak out so boldly, so forcefully. Now, he posted a video on July 31st, 2023. And it's amazing because the criticisms that you have been explaining that he voiced, which I remember at the time, all basically turned out to be true, that Ukraine had no chance to win, that it would end up harming the European and American economy while bolstering the Russian economy. But here, the last day of July 2023, he basically posted a video knowing that if he wasn't saved by the U.S. government, if people didn't intervene to get him free and to get him out of that country, he knew exactly what would happen, which was that he would end up being killed in prison. My case originally started as a free speech issue, but because of the SBU and the inherent corruption and the criminal justice system in Ukraine, I will definitely be sent to a prison labor camp where I will most certainly die. And so I decided that the smart thing was take my chances in terms of getting across the border. I just want to make sure that nobody thinks that the American government and the Biden administration wasn't aware of his case. A lot of us were talking about it at the time. This video circulated everywhere. Was there any moment, obviously he's asking for help there, when his family, when, when you asked the United States government to intervene in any way in order to help him? And are you aware of any efforts that the consulate made to ensure that his rights were being protected? I sent many letters to embassy officials, including Ambassador Brinken. I explained to them the fact that my son was a U.S. citizen and they had not done a thing to help him out. They didn't even provide an attorney. The court of Ukraine appointed the defense attorney who didn't speak any English. How the hell could he communicate with my son? The U.S. Embassy's behavior was unbelievable. They wanted Gonzalo to die. And I was always asking myself, was my son that important? He had hundreds of thousands of viewers. Had he become that important that 
married to detain him? I mean, it's outrageous. What have I done so far since my poor son died? I have placed in the Secretary of State uh, Department the Freedom of Information Act. I want to know all correspondence documents between Mr. Blinken, Victoria Nuland, and the Lady Ambassador Brink of the USA in Ukraine concerning my son Gonzalo, because what they did to my son is an assassination. My son did not have any criminal charges. My son used the power of freedom of speech. They arrested him. He had been in jail for eight months without a trial. And why? I read in different places in Ukraine that many of the political opposition to Zelensky, they would be detained by the SBU, exactly as my son was detained. And they would keep them in jail for months. Their intention was to make them ill and have them die of natural causes. That is what they did to my son Gonzalo Lira. How much money is Zelensky getting from the 115 billion that we have accounted so far? How much has plowed into his pocket? And how much is Hunter Biden getting? Obviously, the United States government has influence with most countries, probably more than any country it has the most influence in Ukraine, given the fact that the Ukrainians are completely dependent on the largesse of the American government to pay for their war, to prop them up. And had the Biden administration even lifted a finger in defense of your son, he would have obviously been released from prison without having been convicted of a crime. And certainly they would not have been allowed to cause him to die in the way that he did. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Wednesday's presidential election in Indonesia could see the ascendance of General Prabowo Subianto, who has tried for years to seize power after decades of involvement in mass killings, kidnapping, and torture across Indonesia, in occupied East Timor, and in independence-seeking Western New Guinea, as reported by the Greystone. Subianto is a longtime U.S. protege and the son-in-law of former Indonesian dictator Suharto, who came to power in a CIA-backed coup in 1965-66, which, ush which ushered in a regime that killed upwards of one million Indonesians. I interview Nadia Williams, communications director for Veterans for Peace in San Francisco. Williams gave testimony at the online Cold War Truth Commission in 2021 on the U.S.-backed coup in Indonesia and its bloody consequences. Williams's father was a professor in Indonesia during the progressive presidency of Sukarno, was deported by the CIA, and later harassed in the U.S. for his political beliefs. I spoke with Nadia Williams about the possible election now of General Subianto. The 1965-66 coup, perhaps easily over a million died. That was General Suharto. Now, the current president, who was just recently elected, General Prabowo, was the son-in-law of General Suharto that perpetrated the 65-66 coup. He has always been an ally of the United States. He's past Minister of Defense and the current president, newly elected Prabowo, oversaw the massacres in East Timor in the early 80s and 1990s, and also massacres in West Papua. The people there are very, very repressed, trying to get their independence. I would direct people to Alan Nairn, an American journalist, and he has an excellent article in The Intercept. He said that there were many threats to voters, especially over the poor and marginalized, who have always been terrorized by many of the governments in Indonesia. In the past, there's been widespread voter fraud, including computer hacking. And then Nairn says that many of the young people, I mean, 50% of the country is young people new voters, and they are just not educated about the past and the horrible 65-66 coup. That information is very actively censored. 
Suharto only relinquished rule in 1998, so his 32-year dictatorship was really ruthless. But soon after 98, the daughter of the deposed president, Sukarno, she ruled, and there were attempts in the past to recognize and speak the truth about the past coup and massacre of the mid-60s. But I'm afraid the country has reverted back. There were attempts and even calls elements of the government and the military should, quote, apologize, unquote. But sadly, the outgoing president, who seems to be much more moderate, Joko Widowo, he has moved more and more to the right. His son is the vice presidential candidate and now elected vice president, along with this new president, Prabowo. So there has been a merging, unfortunately, of a more liberal past government with this very repressive and power-hungry current president, Prabowo. Let's see if there has been widespread voter fraud. As in the past, there might be demonstrations to, you know, to protest these election results. We don't know. The U.S. has always been very interested in Indonesia because it's an incredibly rich spot on the earth. Oil, timber, minerals, cheap labor for American corporations, on and on. It's right in a critical trade route. But I believe now it is a very important pawn in the American uh, game of ISIS and surrounding China from South Korea in the north through the Philippines and then down into Australia and New Zealand. They're really ramping up the military presence against China. There is a total connection between militarism, the military-industrial complexes, and wars, and the climate crisis. A very active group within National Veterans for Peace is the Climate Crisis and Militarism Working Group. There's a direct connection from the inception with the manufacturing on up to the actual hot wars that are polluting and heating up, burning fossil fuels to beat the band all over the world. He was Minister of Defense. He oversaw many massacres. He's all about the military, and I think the Western military-industrial complexes and corporations must be applauding um, the election of Prabowo in Indonesia because that's just going to be more more orders for weapons. There has always been, ever since the 65-66 uh, coup, close military collaboration with the United States, and I think that's going to be ramping up bases or personnel, certainly training and and weapons and jet and on and on. And Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia were all supposed to be part of these pawns. But as soon as Vietnam War really started in 1964 uh, on a lie, and that is also connected with what the U.S. was working on in Indonesia at right of the same, very same years. Okinawa, uh, Jeju Islands, controlled by Japan, all of those are going to be used not only the natural environment, but also the fauna, uh, the animals on the land, orangutans, that's the only place on the planet where they live is in the Indonesian uh, jungles. But also this militarism is a huge threat to the animals in the ocean, whales and all the marine mammals, to say nothing of our fishing stock, which is a source of food for the world. It's very, very destructive. We'd like to give you the website of the Cold War Truth Commission that was previously mentioned and that Nadia Williams had been a part of. It was a nine-hour webinar of 54 speakers, many of them top political analysts, and it put the U.S. Cold War on trial. Uh, it can be found at Frank Dorrell's um, anti-war site, Abundant, uh, www.addictedtowar.org, under the webinars. And thank you. And Look at them and share them out. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. The situation in Gaza is getting worse every day due to the lack of medical supplies, and now there is an increasing shortage of drinking water. More details with Telesur correspondent Noor Harazin on the ground in Gaza. 
A new storm hit the uh, Gaza Strip, and even though the uh, weather is cold and wintry, but since the very early hours of this morning, and Palestinians, including Palestinian children, runs here to the closest water tank that is serving the area to manage and refill the uh, water barrels or water uh, tanks and take it to their homes. Uh, the uh, situation here in Rafah is deteriorating, especially that the Palestinians fear a very near future ground invasion. However, what is the highlight these days is actually what is happening inside the Al-Nasser Hospital. Now, the Al-Nasser Hospital is being subjected to continuous Israeli attacks and bombings. After uh, the Israeli forces uh, surrounded the hospital, besieged the hospital, asked Palestinians to leave the hospital, yes, some of them actually managed to leave the hospital, uh, including medical staff and journalists, but during their way to Rafah, the Israeli forces arrested a number of the people that evacuated the Al-Nasser hospital. Uh, at the same time, uh, the Israeli tanks shelled at the Al-Nasser hospital. One of the shells actually uh, landed on a unit that was filled with uh, patients. Uh, this resulted in the killing of one patient and the injury of uh, others. Now inside the Al-Nasser hospital, there is a number of patients, those who cannot walk, those who cannot move around, still on their beds, and of course, a number of the medical team refused to leave them. Yemen has doubled down on its stance in supporting the Palestinians. The Yemeni Minister of Information says naval operations in the Red Sea will continue until the Israeli hostilities in Gaza end. Press TV's Abdul Latif Al-Washali has this report. In a press conference in the Yemeni capital, Sana'a Daifullah Shami, spokesperson for the Yemeni government and Minister of Information, once again reiterated Yemen's stance that the U.S. presence in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden poses a real threat to international maritime navigation by militarizing international waters. As Shami stated that Washington's presence under the pretext of protecting Israeli vessels provokes the Yemeni army to continue its naval operations. America is the source of real threats to navigation in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. And the presence of its forces that came from a distance of 9,000 miles to launch an aggression against Yemen under false and blatant justifications. They are to protect the ships of the Israeli entity and support it economically and militarily and have nothing to do with securing international navigation. Hashemi added that the U.S. and U.K. have launched over 400 air strikes against the Yemeni territories, resulting in the deaths of more than 40 soldiers. He asserted that neither Western aggression nor the U.S. designation of Ansarullah as a terrorist group will halt Yemen's naval operations in support of Palestinians. The American designation of the Ansarullah movement as a terrorist group is ironic. How can a terrorist classify those who defend themselves and their causes as terrorists? This designation shows U.S. no longer has any steps to take to stop Yemeni operations in support of Palestine. This classification will not affect Yemen's military operations, but may be a provocation for greater escalation. Earlier, the leader of the Ansarullah movement, Abdul Malik al-Houthi, stated that no Israeli-linked vessel has sailed through the Red Sea in the past weeks, describing this as a major victory. He accused the U.S. and U.K. of being the real terrorists for assisting the Israeli regime in committing war crimes against the innocent people of the Gaza Strip. And you've been listening again to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Please support our nightly news show with telling your friends and family and by donating to us. Please call 818-985-5735 and mention that you donate specifically to Rebel Alliance News. We've been bringing you breaking news and analysis for over a year now, after 10 years without LA-produced local news at KPFK. But we need to keep the lights on and pay for the station signal. So please call 818 818- 989-5735 or go online to kpfk.org and become a member of our sustaining circle by donating $25, $50, or $100 a month or gladly more and join our KPFK family. Rebel Alliance News thanks our engineer Wendell Handy hey, and all tireless contributors like Paulina Vasiliev, Hunter Green, Reggie Wong, and our wonderful producer Siri Rideau. You can also find our content on www.rebelalliancenews.org and on the KPFK Rebel Alliance News podcast on Apple and Spotify. 
Coming up next is American Indian Airways. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back tomorrow at 6 p.m. I hope you'll join us again. I'm Rachel Brunke, Buena Suerte, and good night. Sherman D. Manning, Yes We Can Worship Center, we house